Welcome to the IT Career Energizer podcast. For anyone who wants to build and grow a career in IT, develop and improve your strengths and skills, be inspired and motivated by the successes of others, manage your career progression, and achieve your IT career goals. And now, your host, Phil Burgess. Welcome to episode 110 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is Lee Byron. Lee is helping to lead web engineering at Robin Hood, having previously worked for Facebook for nearly 10 years. He is also an open source contributor and was a co-creator of GraphQL whilst of Facebook, which is an open source data query and manipulation language for APIs. So, Lee, can you expand on that brief intro and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. I think you did a good job covering the things that I'm most proud of. During my 10 years at Facebook, I got to touch a lot of things. I actually started there as a data scientist and product designer. Spent a couple years as the product designer for Facebook Mobile and then spent a, a lot of time in front-end engineering for mobile in particular, both on the web and on iOS That's what led me to help co-create GraphQL when we were specifically working on a new version of our iOS application at Facebook. And after about 10 years at Facebook, feeling the itch to do something new and uh, connected with my friends at at Robinhood, thought that they were doing something extremely interesting, democratizing access to to the financial world, and was really excited about the, the technical challenges that they were facing as well. So I uh, joined them earlier this year, where I've been helping them lead web engineering in particular. But um, I've had my hands in a couple of things, including a lot of our, our new growth and product efforts. You must have seen a big difference between Robin Hood and Facebook in terms of the culture and the way they work. Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference is just in size. When I first joined Facebook, they were a little over 400 people. Um, and today, I'm not sure exactly how big they are, but it's got to be over 20,000. And Robinhood right now is around 250 people. And so it's more similar to what Facebook was like in that first year or so that I was there, um, except now I have sort of 10 years of experience in between. So it's it's quite interesting having being back in a similar position, uh, but being a very different person in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's big cultural differences between the two, although there's actually think there's more similar than different in terms of how they think about building high quality products. Both companies are very product focused, how they lend trust to to individuals within the team uh, to build things. That's very similar. And the amount of transparency within the company. Um, One of my favorite things about Facebook was these weekly Q and a sessions where Mark and other leaders at Facebook would sort of give a recap of important things that happened that week and then open it up to any questions um, that could be asked live. And they got a lot of really tough questions along the way. And I thought that was really helpful to both understand what the company was doing and then also be able to sort of speak voice to power and make sure that the company was hearing all the tough conversations that were happening throughout the company. Uh, And I was really pleased to see that Robinhood has a very similar setup. We also have a weekly all hands meeting where we talk about highlights from the week, um, things that are on the, the leaders' minds, and then take unstructured questions. Um, and that being one of my favorite parts of Facebook, making sure that that's also here with us at Robinhood, um, 
gives me a lot of confidence. Lee, can you maybe share a unique career tip with the IT career energizer audience, one they may not know and perhaps should? I think the thing that has helped me the most is looking for the overlap between two different skill sets. I'm kind of one of those people that's always trying to learn something new and I'm always digging into new hobbies. And um, the way that I find myself in any one position is usually by grabbing the end of a thread and yanking on it. Um, So I don't really have any formal training in any of the things that I do these days. Um, And it's all kind of the result of having gotten interested in something and just tugged on it and tugged on it and, and started building something when I wanted to learn by doing. And then inevitably finding myself in a position where people looked to me for answers or advice or to get something done without really having any formal training in doing that. So um, I had to learn to get over imposter syndrome. I think if you, if you're doing your job well, then you should be proud of that. I many times in my career felt like I'm not sure why I'm here. (laughs) Should I be here? Um, All these people seem smarter than me. And uh, I've learned that every time I feel that feeling, it's a good thing. It means that I'm surrounded by people that I can learn from and I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I think just finding those overlaps, whenever there's two different kinds of things that you think don't go together that you're interested in and figuring out where they overlap and then digging into that, that's always been where I found the most interesting things in my career so far has been in those overlaps. So, Lee, can you maybe tell us about your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience? Maybe a variation on worst moment. My biggest mistake was betting big on HTML and the web platform as the way to do mobile development at Facebook. And this was from maybe 2010 and 11 uh, in the early parts of 2012. I've always been a web person. I've been building websites since the 90s. And I remember when Steve Jobs got on stage and and held up the iPhone for the first time and, and talked about it as a tool for the internet and how if you wanted to make an experience for this new platform, all you had to do is build a website. And I just thought that was amazing. That was perfect. It lined up with everything that I had been doing so far, and I had seen the web expand so rapidly. And here I was in the very beginning of my my career at Facebook, and I thought these all these things fit together so well, and I, I was so excited to start building on it. And there was, um, you know, when the iOS uh, native app platform came out, Facebook built a, a native iOS application, but it kind of felt like a, a secondary tool. Facebook.com had all of the features. And then the Facebook iOS app only had a few features. That always felt wrong to me. And I thought that we should have a mobile version that could do everything that the desktop site could do. Yeah. And people bought in on this. I, I obviously wasn't the only one who felt this way. We, we formed a team that was set off to go do this. And I felt really strongly that the right way to do that was to build a mobile website. We built a mobile website and, and it worked really well on touch devices for iOS and Android. And, and that felt great that we could kind of build one thing and it would work across all these platforms. And iOS and Android weren't the only ones, right? And those feel like the only two mobile platforms now, but 
back in 2009, 2010, there was still WebOS. There's the early versions of window phone that were still kicking around. There was Black, BlackBerry was actually bigger than iOS at that point, I believe. So there was a huge diversity of platforms and mobile web allowed us to sort of build one thing and target all of those different platforms. So that started out well. We thought we were on the right track. And in fact, we doubled down. And I think here's where I feel like I made a mistake. As we doubled down when we decided that this mobile web platform that we had built would become the test bed and the, the bottom layer on top of which we would build all of our new mobile platform and mobile experiences. So we built a native iOS app and a native Android app that were basically glorified web browsers. They added in some extra features like you know photo uploads and, and location uh, for check-ins. But really what they did is just load up pages from our mobile website. We were betting that since iOS had mobile Safari and since Android had their own web browser, that they would compete with each other to have higher quality browsers. And we were so wrong. that. In fact, exactly the opposite happened. Uh, those browsers ended up being crippled. They were had tons of bugs, and desktop browsers kept innovating and launching these new features, and the mobile browsers would just lag years behind them. And we found ourselves in this position where the mobile website had less features and was less powerful than the desktop site because the mobile browsers were lagging behind. Well, at the same time, the native platforms we're advancing year over year at a rapid pace. Every year they would launch really interesting new frameworks, really interesting new integrations into the operating system. And we had to basically admit that we had totally done this wrong. Um, and I believe Mark went on stage at some point and said, uh, you know, HTML5 was one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made as a company. <laughs> right. And I, I remember feeling a little hurt at that moment because, you know, I was kind of on that team designing and building that HTML-based mobile platform. But, you know, I, sometimes I think the, the best things that we make come out of our realizing our biggest mistakes. And this ad, ad, admittance that we had done something that wasn't the right technical move, that we had bet on the wrong technology, that was right at the beginning of 2012. And it was also right as, as Facebook was starting to talk about going public. And, and they were talking about how the biggest risk to the company was we were watching this huge migration to mobile and, and we just didn't think that we had our, we just didn't have a grip on mobile. We didn't know what we were doing. And that was actually, if you go back and look at the early documents of that pre IPO stuff, that's listed as one of the biggest highlighted risks to potential investors. So man, if that doesn't light a fire under your butt, I don't know what else does. Um, we were given the, the charge to go, go fix this, just figure out what it would be. And that's when we decided that we, we needed a pure native iOS app and Android app, um, at the very least for the first things that you see in the app, that's newsfeed. And that led us on this path of realizing that, you know, we built everything web all the way up until this point. We've never hit an API before. We'd always just admitted web pages. So we had to figure out what an API for newsfeed would look like and realizing that we weren't happy with anything that was out there that led us to sort of go back to first principles and that caused us to to invent GraphQL. So, you know, from one of my biggest mistakes, which was doubling down on on HTML for mobile, became one of the things I'm actually most proud of um, in my time at Facebook, which was building GraphQL. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
In terms of what you learn from that experience, obviously going going down the wrong route with technology, it's a difficult one to understand in terms of you can't necessarily predict what the right answer actually is. But is there anything you you took away from that experience that would possibly prevent you doing making a similar mistake? I do think there definitely are. Um, and what you said about you not being able to predict the future, there's certainly an element of that there. That's that's certainly true. And I don't regret the the gusto with which we pursued the direction that we pursued. Uh, we were able to build a lot really quickly, and uh, and that was a great thing. And in doing so, we helped the company shift their perspective of thinking about Facebook as a website that you visit from your laptop to a product that is diversified across a lot of platforms. So, so that part was still successful. But I think the thing that we definitely could have done better is constantly ask ourselves along the way if the choices that we're making still make sense, and if not, how we should shift. And I think in 2009 and 2010, building a high-quality mobile site was totally the right thing to do. And then later on in 2010, 2011, as mobile became more and more important, I think there was a moment there that we missed where we could have backed up and said, what we're building now is not the same thing that we were building 18, 24 months ago. And we should really reevaluate what we're doing here. And I think instead of that, we doubled down. We said, we're really proud of this mobile website that we've built. We think it's really high quality. And we think that we can build the next era of mobile experiences on top of what we have. And we were totally wrong. And I think it wasn't unanimous in that decision. There was a little bit of internal push on that, where we had some really high quality iOS engineers at the company who are saying, I don't think that's going to work. And I think we missed the opportunity to dig into that a little bit more, to better understand what we thought wouldn't work and why, and to do a little bit of time maybe building up some fast prototypes, just spend a, a month or so just evaluating technologies before we move forward. It's always tough to make that call because that's a month that you could have spent building and shipping something to customers. But I think at that moment, it would have been much smarter to have stopped, listen, and evaluated what we were doing before doubling down. Yeah, and that's great advice. Yeah. Okay, so moving away from your worst moment, can you maybe tell us about your career highlight or greatest success? One of the things that I'm most proud of is open sourcing GraphQL and everything that's happened in the GraphQL community after that. I think part of what's interesting about this is, you know, I was part of that uh, initial handful of people who, who built GraphQL in 2012 as a result of having to, to rebuild our mobile apps and then spent another year or so building a team around GraphQL. And then I moved on. I, I worked on other things at Facebook. Um, I worked on our iOS team for a while, um, and I worked on a couple other things. And I came back in 2015, three years later. The GraphQL team had grown at that point, and they wanted to open source GraphQL. And they really wanted me to help them do that. And I wasn't sure at first. I thought, you know, GraphQL's... Uh, it's certainly not a simple thing. Uh, there's some complexity to it. And I, I understood how powerful it was for Facebook, but I thought, you know, Facebook's a really complicated product. And I'm a little concerned that what we've built here is appropriate for Facebook, but maybe not for everybody else. And then also GraphQL was uh, some code written in Hack, which is Facebook's 
version of PHP. And it, Hack itself was open source, but very few people used it. So I was thinking, you know, if we just take this code and open source it, no one's going to pay attention. What's the point? But the team was really excited, and they were excited for a couple of reasons. One is that they they just watched the React project open source. A lot of the teams that have open sourced things in the for front end engineers at Facebook, we're actually we all sit next to each other. Uh, we're part of a, a common clan. So we all sit next to the the React team, and we watched the first year be a little bit rough, and then it really took off like a rocket, um, and a lot of positive things came from that. And actually, the impetus was from the Relay team. So Relay is a piece of software that ties React and GraphQL together. And they had been talking to people in the open source community about Relay, just in the context of React, when people would ask them, you know, how do you build complicated data-rich products at Facebook with React. And they would explain a little bit of Relay and people get excited. So they're like, okay, well, we really want to talk about this more publicly. But in order to do that, we really need to talk about GraphQL more publicly. So is it okay to do that? And that was our seed where we knew that we had teams that relied on us that were excited about open sourcing. And we had to decide what it was that we wanted to do. Because again, I don't think that releasing a a hack library, a PHP library, was going to do it. And also, GraphQL now was almost three years old. And over the years, it had been iterated on, and we had kind of patched features on top of it over the years, and it had kind of gotten a little bit messy and complicated. Just a, it, it felt like it had three years of stuff glued onto it. So we decided at, at that moment that we should take a step back and think, if we were going to rebuild GraphQL from scratch, what would it look like? And then kind of as a second step, if we were going to rebuild GraphQL that gave us a path, an iterative path from what we had to what we wanted to have, so that whatever new thing that we came up with, we could actually migrate Facebook to use, um, how would that constrain us? And then what, what should the deliverable actually be to an open source audience? And for that last question, we decided that a specification could be a, a good fit. So we looked at other things like programming languages and you know, really inspired by a lot of pieces of the web. If you go look at all of the W3C specifications, they're really clearly written and, and they allowed people to operate with each other and build those ideas in a lot of different programming languages and in concert with a lot of different libraries and frameworks. And we thought that that's exactly what GraphQL should be as well. Um, GraphQL should fit that same that same mold. So we spent a couple of months in this intensive design process, um, sort of going back to first principles, thinking about how can we simplify, how can we solve a lot of the problems and pain points that we felt over the years with our now three years of experience using this thing. And then we exited that design process with this written document that described what GraphQL is every step with both human readable prose that explains why things work the way they do, but then right next to sort of pseudocode algorithms where you can read step by step, oh, this is exactly how this thing is going to work. And then alongside that, we built a JavaScript library, not because Facebook uses JavaScript, but because we recognized one, JavaScript is now the most popular programming language out there, which we were hoping meant the most number of people could go look at that and understand it. 
Um, but then also a lot of the tools that we had build in, been building at Facebook were based on JavaScript. Uh, and that way they could run in browsers. And we have this really important tool for GraphQL called Graphical, which is basically an in-browser IDE, gives you a type ahead, and then it lets you sort of test out and run queries in the browser before you ever have to go dive into any of your, your client code. And a lot of people at Facebook got a lot of use from that. So we built this JavaScript library on the new version of GraphQL. We built a new version of Graphical that used that JavaScript library to work. And then we open sourced all three of these things, the specification, the JavaScript library, and Graphical, the tool. And then we explained to people why we thought the spec was so important. And it worked way better than I ever could have anticipated. In under six months, GraphQL was implemented in nine different languages. None of those by Facebook engineers. Um, you know, We had built our JavaScript version, but then there's all these other ones built by the community. And they all matched the specification, which meant that if you were an iOS app or an Android app or web app, and you wanted to use GraphQL, it didn't matter if your backend was built in Ruby or Python or Scala or Java or JavaScript or Clojure or whatever, there was an implementation of GraphQL there to pick up as a library and use, which was really valuable for the technology to take off. Uh, so I was circling back to what you were originally asking me, a highlight um, was just not being sure if what we were building was even worth building. You know, we were excited about the redesign effort, but we weren't sure if anyone was going to pay attention. And then just not only were people paying attention, but man, they totally exceeded our expectations <laughs> on how they would take it and run with it. Yes. Um, that certainly was the highlight of my career so far, I think. Yeah, that, that must have been very um, sort of inspiring as well as sort of fulfilling to actually see people pick it up and run with it, as you say. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, Lee, can you maybe tell us what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT in particular? There's so many things that are exciting to me about the future. Not only are there so many interesting technologies that are starting to become a lot more democratized, I think one that everybody's been paying attention to is machine learning and AI, which for a long time were purely academia and then sort of in this intermediate state where companies were using them to build interesting things, but the only way they could is by going out and hiring a bunch of postdoc. Basically, you know, you acquire a postdoc team and now you can do interesting things with AI. So clearly that's not very accessible. Um, but now a lot of those things have been open sourced to the point where anyone with no experience can pull one of these libraries off the shelf and do something very interesting. I think we're right at the very beginning of that still um, to the point where I think 10 years from now, a lot of the software that we write will use machine learning in fascinating ways. Uh, one of the things I saw most recently that blew my mind was data structures that relied on machine learning to figure out how to lay out the data structure and how to perform various applications on those. I can remember you know, learning about data structures myself and being amazed at how different data structures and algorithms would give you different trade-offs of performance for reads or writes or sorts or, or whatever, but they were, they were all very fixed. The algorithms were all very simple. And this one was about how the algorithm itself was kind of unknowable. You, it was, you had to train it on whatever data you were going to put in the structure, but then it very much was a data structure and algorithms that fit that same box. That kind of blew my mind that I had never really thought about it applying in that exact 
way. So that to me is super exciting. Um, another thing that's really exciting to me is just how we work, allowing people to become more remote uh, and tools like Slack and GitHub, giving people the tools that they need to work together in really diverse settings. Uh, one of my friends just started a company recently and has been sort of doubling down on this idea, uh, but he wants to create little hubs where there's a kind of a couple people per hub. And just watching the experimentation with new ways for people to work together, I think is really exciting. I don't know if all of those ideas will work, but just the fact that people are experimenting with them and figuring them out, I think that will lead to a lot more people being able to have a lot more opportunities. Uh, I'm, I know that a lot of people need feel like they need to move to one of the big cities, London, Amsterdam, New York, San Francisco, in order to actually take part and have opportunities in IT. I hope that won't be the same five, 10 years from now. No, I suspect it won't be. I suspect people, as you say, will be more remote and, and the flexibility will be there. I think it's already started. It certainly has to a degree, yes. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. Are you ready for this? Sure. So what first attracted you to a career in IT? Almost as an accident. I've always been interested in computers. I was making things on computers ever since I was a teenager. But really, my my passions growing up were art, architecture, and design. And I went to school for that. I went to school for design. And um, I remember even in school thinking, the last thing I want to do is go work at a company that builds websites. Um, (laughs) Because I had built websites in high school and I had kind of, you know, I I had a part-time job during college helping people with websites. I was like, this is boring and I don't like it. And the last thing I want to do is is help more people with websites. But then, of course, um, after leaving school and, and looking at the, this was right in 2008 um, in the aftermath of the financial crash. And there weren't that many people hiring. And I was super lucky to have a personal connection to the the graphics editor at the New York Times. So I went to the New York Times as an intern with the promise that if I worked really hard and proved myself that that might turn into a real job. Uh, But I took it uh, just in part for the the excitement prestige of the New York Times, and in part because I needed a job. Um, and was really excited to work on designing graphics, data graphics in particular, was, you know, really interested in answering questions and things like that. And um, that was a lot of fun. And along the way, uh, I got a call from the head of data science at Facebook. And I was at first not interested. You know, this was at the time, a small company doing Social networking, wasn't sure if social networking was a thing that was going to stick around. They were way smaller than MySpace. I just had a lot of questions for them about whether or not they were going to fall apart in a year or two and what I would do there anyway. You know, they were building a website and I told myself, I don't really want to build websites. But he explained to me that interesting things that they were doing with people and how much they were learning and how they wanted to share what they were learning with both others at the company and and beyond. And they needed somebody who understood both data and design and they found me. So I thought that was just a really interesting pitch. I went out to Facebook to meet more people, was blown away by their design team, by their data science team, and decided that it would be really exciting. I'd I'd love to, to take part in that. So I did that. And for the first 
six months or so at Facebook, I basically did what was prompted. You know, I was helping the design or helping the data science team explain the things that they were learning to the rest of the company and uh, help them interact with the press when they wanted to talk about what they were learning. And then I realized there just wasn't quite enough in, to do in that space. Uh, and I started picking up odd jobs for the design team. So I was helping the design team with small pieces of products. And at one point, the design director came up to me and said, hey, you're spending more than half your time doing design work, but only in these piecemeal fashion. And we have these bigger projects that really need help. And we'd love for you to come do that. It's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm a data scientist. You know, <laughs> I'm a data scientist with a design background. She's like, that's, she was like, that's crazy. Uh, you're, you're kidding yourself. You know, here, grab this more important project and just let us know how you think. And it was a ton of fun. And the second project I picked up was mobile. And so I was doing the design work for mobile. And that was right as it was shifting from flip phones to touch devices. And I just fell back in love with building things for the web. And, you know, kind of the rest is history from there. But it's a little bit weird in that I'm now a, an engineer. I do a ton of stuff with open source. Uh, I've, I've built and managed teams at Facebook. And I have no background in any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> Design is the only thing that I've ever done that I was actually trained in. And I only did that for maybe a year before I fell into the engineering parts of it. Yep. So, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, I just grabbed the stuff that I was interested in and, and tugged on it. That ended up being uh, how I got to where I am. What is the best career advice you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever gotten is also advice that I get regularly and it's to, to back up and look at the big picture. I have a tendency to focus on what I'm working on and think that completing the thing that I'm working on is, is the most important thing to do, Yeah, uh, which is almost always wrong. <laughs> I've had a couple great managers and one of the best managers that I've ever had every month or so would, would really just at first would pose questions to me that were totally unrelated to what I was doing. And then when I didn't really have strong opinions or you know, really wasn't able to engage with him on those questions, he'd get frustrated with me. He was like, I'd, I'm really disappointed that you don't have a more robust answer to these questions. And I'd be like, yeah, but I'm working on this thing over here. He's like, I'm glad that you're working on that. It's really important. But I need you to have a bigger view of everything that's going on. Spend the next day or two backing up and thinking about what's important overall. And every single time I had that kind of conversation, I had like an oh crap moment where I realized that the thing that I was building was not quite right because it needed to fit in with these three other things. And one of which nobody was paying attention to at all and was missing. And the other one was being mismanaged and needed to be caught up to speed. And I had been only focusing on one of those three. And then there was this other thing that I wanted to do next that now that I'd backed up and thought about it, I'd realized it kind of, it always requires a prod from outside to get me to do that. But that's like the best advice I get. And I kind of get it repeatedly is to stop every once in a while, back up and look at the big picture, both what you're doing, what's going on in the industry and overall, and sort of rethink, am I doing the right thing? Not just for the project I'm working on, but how I want to fit into things for the next foreseeable future. If you were to begin your IT career again right now, what would you do? I would probably end up doing something totally different only because I would end up grabbing something interesting and pulling on that. 
you know, I'm, I'm proud of the things that I've done, but they are a, a factor of the, you know, one of my favorite things that I've heard is it's better to be lucky than smart. And, uh, I hope that I'm reasonably smart, but I, I certainly think that I've been pretty lucky. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of what I've gotten to work on in my career is the result of, you know, having the, the right skills in the, in the right moment and having the right opportunity align with those things. And there's certainly been moments where I felt the miss where something comes up and I just, I don't have the skills for it, or I have the skills and the, there's no opportunity around. So I, I certainly understand that the few times that it's worked have been rare compared to the many times where it's felt like I had almost those things. And then it was a miss. So I feel like a lot of my career, while I'm proud of it, is the result of those lucky moments lining up, uh, one of which leads to the next, which leads to the next. And so if I was to start my career over, I would certainly dig into the things I'm excited about to see where they would lead. But it's really hard to predict where that would take me because part of what I've done so far is as things bubble up and they feel like a fit, I try to grab them and run with them. Some of the things that I think are really exciting that I'd that I'd love to at some point in my my future career have an opportunity to work on is the intersection between machine learning and and all the interesting new things that are happening in technology and education. The overlap between those two things I think is fascinating. Um, There's a lot that's happening with ed tech um, that's interesting, but the area that I, I would love to take a stab in is you know, if you ever go to a, a really high quality museum and you see an exhibit that you can interact with and it interacts with you and you have this visceral personal connection to something and, and you're just so excited to be learning that really, in my experience, personal experience at least, has only really happened outside of the classroom and off of a computer and a screen and when I'm in a space and I'm interacting with things. Those experiences, those states of flow are, are so much a designed experience and they're so rare and so hard to pull off. I think it would be a joy to to get to work on something like that. Sure. That leads us into the next question really as well. So what career objectives are you currently focusing on? So right now, what I'm really focusing on is helping Robinhood grow. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is I think the product is really interesting. I think it's exciting. Uh, but I think their mission is even more important and exciting. I've always been interested in personal finance. I'm one of those nerds that pulls open Excel sheets or or Google sheets to do anything. (laughs) When I first moved to San Francisco and I had a roommate, we were looking at places to stay. I opened up a a spreadsheet that allowed us to evaluate every place that we looked at and punch in numbers. And it would calculate which of the places that we looked at was the best one. And he made fun of me mercilessly for, for this. He thought it was overkill. And he was like, we're just going to pick the one that feels right, which of course is what we did. And then I was ready to point out to him that the one that we picked because it felt right also happened to be the one that my <laughs> spreadsheet said was the right one to, yes. to go to. Um, and then when preparing Thanksgiving dinner, you know, I'm, I have a huge spreadsheet out that's each column is like a, a stovetop or an oven or whatever, and what's going to be cooking where. And so I just love the analytics side of, of these things and, and finance is similar. So, you know, I had no background in it years ago, but um, as I started doing a little bit of investing myself, um, I wanted to make sure that I was understanding what I was doing 
And as I learned more, I realized how complicated it all was. And it was a little bit off-putting. But being kind of a nerd, I, I dug into it anyway, just kind of being fascinated. So when I had the opportunity to work with some of my friends at Robinhood, uh, I got really excited because they're tackling exactly that problem that I felt, where all the stuff feels so complicated and it feels expensive in all the wrong ways. And they were working to democratize that both by helping people better understand what it is that they're doing and also to make it less expensive. So there's less risk just in, in touching it, period. And so I, I really believe in that mission. I was really excited by that. And I just hope that more people can, can try that out. So a lot of what I've been doing at Robinhood is, is to help things grow, whether that's helping the team at Robinhood grow or helping Robinhood the product grow. That's a lot of what I've been focused on now and for the next couple of years, yeah. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far? A lot of what I learned in design school, I apply constantly. And the thing that I apply the most is having a really good understanding of how people interact with things. That was the understatement of my entire design education. Uh, we had a couple classes that were just literally about how people interact with objects and things and screens. Um, but of course, every other project that we ever did just kind of assumed that we would figure that out along the way. And so I have this like years in baked in knowledge of uh, and experiences of, of all of this. And it's helped immensely because while in design school, of course, we were thinking about consumer objects and designed experiences on, on screens, physical, all those exact same ideas apply to building libraries for software and designing APIs for products. And a lot of these other domains that most people think of as outside the realm where a designer would take part. But, you know, while my day job is not a designer, my background is still designer and you can't take the designer out of me. Yeah. And everything that I run into, I think about, well, how would someone interact with this and how can I make this a good designed experience? And I think that's helped me out immensely in all of the things that I've done. Lee, can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT Career Energizer audience? I'd just like to, to reiterate what I was talking about before and finding the overlap between skills and chasing that. All of the things I've been lucky enough to pursue have been in these overlaps where it's as a designer and someone who understands data and then going work on data graphics or the overlap between knowledge of building products for mobile and designing APIs leading to GraphQL and so many other places where I have two skills that are thought about as you know two different disciplines or two different roles and where they overlap, there's almost always something unique where I can, I can have an outsized impact. Sure. I'm not rare in that sense, that people are complicated. People have lots of things that they're excited about. Um, I, I don't believe that the vast majority of people fit in these roles that people hire for as an engineer or designer or front end or back end. Or people are interested in a plethora of things. And so they're good at something that they think isn't related to their job. And I think that there's almost always something that overlaps. If you can find two things that you're good at that you don't think are related to each other, figure out where they overlap 
And there's almost always something really interesting there. And finally, what's the best way we can find out more about you and connect with you? So I'm pretty active on Twitter, at Lee B. And I'm also pretty active on GitHub. I'm Lee Byron on GitHub. And you'll find me on GraphQL projects, React projects. Uh, Immutable JS is a library I built and maintained there as well. Um, and a handful of other things on, on GitHub. So on Twitter, I talk mostly about the things I do on GitHub. But uh, you know, Twitter is a great way to stay connected as well. Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. As always, my thanks go to my guest on today's show. You'll find a show notes page for today's episode on the IT Career Energizer website, which will be itcareerenergizer.com slash e, and then the number of today's episode. I also want to thank you for your continued support. It's always great to hear from listeners, particularly when they have suggestions about potential guests or ways to improve the show. And this was one of the reasons for creating the new IT Career Energizer Community Facebook group. I'm really excited about taking the podcast forward, and I hope that you'll continue to support and listen to the show as it continues to change and evolve. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.